Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello, friends and music nerds. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 96. We're in season four, the crazy Corona season. And um, as we get close to 100, I'm, I don't know, I'm considering taking a little break after I get to around 100 of these because, you know, it's just been so crazy and life has been completely nuts, as you know. And I might just take a short break from doing the podcast, but we'll see how it goes. I've got a, a few of these in the can still and a few more planned. And so it may go a little over 100 and then I need a little a little respite. So anyway, for now, uh, here we go. This is episode 96. And my guest today is David Pilch, the wonderful musician, amazing bass player. Some guys that play upright don't like being called bass players. They like being called upright bassists. I don't think David would mind either way. So I'm going to call him a bassist, but maybe he'll punch me. I don't know. In any case, uh, it's great to have him on the show. Um, our podcast is brought to you by our two most excellent sponsors, Union Tube and Transistor, based out of Vancouver, making amazing pedals, sometimes amplifiers, and just all around cool stuff. I use it all the time, and I think you should check it out. They sponsor our show, as does another cool company from Vancouver, Canada called Black mountain picks and he makes these really crazy cool thumb picks that i've been using pretty much since the lockdown started and really enjoying them they're thumb picks but they're spring loaded and they react way differently than a traditional thumb pick and i recommend them what else can i tell you we have a facebook page and instagram page i would love to connect with you and hear from you there makers and shakers podcast as well as our pretty recently new website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So check that out. There's some shirts on there. And please be sure to subscribe on Apple and or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. And please, if you wouldn't mind, go to Apple Podcasts, if that's your world, and uh, leave a review. It's very helpful. And generally, if a show gets more reviews, they get placed higher in the rankings and put in front of more people. So it just helps the cause to spread the word. So thanks for that. And as you know, I could always use your help financially. This podcast is essentially listener supported. And if you're able to contribute, we could use your help to keep this show going more than ever. And you can do that two ways. One is a just a one-time donation and the other is a monthly Patreon subscription. And both are easy to do. You just visit makersandshakerspodcast.com and in the top right corner is a donate button and that will take you to 
uh, links to either make a one-time donation or subscribe to Patreon. And if you subscribe to Patreon, you get access to a fun little series that I do where I put up videos every couple of weeks that sort of coincide with these episodes and just talk about songs that I've worked on and produced and pull up tracks and talk about how they were done and stuff like that. So that's kind of fun. That's what's going on there. And I would like to just shout out to a couple of people that did kick in this week, Steve Follett and Pat Liddell. Thank you guys. You're cool. I really appreciate it. All right. I would like to uh, invite and encourage people to call in if you feel like. Uh, I haven't been doing much of that lately and I didn't get many calls this week. I got some emails and stuff, so I'm going to read a couple of those. But I, I would encourage you to call in if you would like to come on the show and also be entered to win some of those Black Mountain picks. You can call here at 615-375-6318. I am actually very curious right now to hear from musicians or music fans or anyone that's involved in live music right now and just give me some of their experiences of what's going on in your area, either with gigs or attending gigs and whether it's happening, how safe it is, what the scene is like, whether you're enjoying it or not. I talked a little bit about it last week, how I did a couple of festival things that were super weird and I mean, it was great to play music again, but it was also very strange and kind of stressful experience. <laughs> so I would love to hear from people. If you feel like calling in, uh, please do so. And uh, the number again is 615-375-6318. You can just call in, leave a message, and I will play it on the show. A couple people emailed, and there's some good stuff here. So I'm just going to read. This one came in from Duncan Martin. He says, hi, Steve. For 17 years, I've called Vancouver home and have enjoyed seeing you play a few times over the years. Cool. I stumbled upon your podcast while binging on David Bromberg content. It was such a fulfilling interview to listen to. I especially like learning that David was such an essential part of the self-portrait New Morning Dylan records. When I started to play my favorite music using online chord sites, I came across a Dylan chord site whose creator just seemed to hate self-portrait, as do so many critics. That's really true. I was born in the 80s, so I had less context for why people would hate it so much. The music just sounds so damn good. It seems that whenever I look into a record that I love, I realize that David Bromberg or David Lindley or Rodney Crowell was behind it. I love how that works. Great interview. So engaging. Thanks for bringing it to us. Duncan Martin. That's cool and very true and funny. And uh, yeah, if, uh, the David Bromberg interview was fun and the Lindley one was epic and awesome. Rodney Crowell is another another guy I should get on this show. I'll tell you that. I have tried. Believe me. One other message here. This is from John Penhallow of Sydney, Australia. And he wrote in and said, loving your shows. Thanks for doing them. Any chance you can reach out to Richard Bennett, guitarist for Mark Knopfler, Neil Diamond, and Steve Earle's first album, Guitar Town, and have a chat about his long career. Well, this is the reason I wanted to read this one out is thanks for writing in, John, but also because I've actually come to quite a few guests through people writing in that listen to the show through like listener suggestion. And I would like to tell you, John Penhallow of Sydney, Australia, that I indeed did reach out to Richard Bennett and he lives very close to me as a matter of fact, and we're hooking up in a couple of weeks. So that will be an episode in this season with uh, Richard Bennett. And that's thanks to you for, for doing that. Okay. Music recommendations. I give you two. Here they are. A uh, brand new album by Kathleen Edwards. She's fantastic. She lives outside of Ottawa. She got really big for a while there and then got really, things got complicated, but basically she wanted to get out of music. So she started a coffee shop just outside of Ottawa and disappeared from music for a good seven or eight years and now has a great 
new record called Total Freedom. Highly recommend it. Sounds great. Killer guitar sounds. And I like it. I'm just checking it out for the first few times. And I think you should too. And the other one is is an old one. It's a classic that not enough people know about. It's an underground classic. And it's by Mary Margaret O'Hara. And it's called Miss America. And it's really one of the great unknown pop albums of of history really she is actually the sister of the comedian Catherine o'hara and she's an incredible vocalist and she made this one record called miss america and my guest today david pilch was in her band and i think he plays on the album but that album is so complicated because so many producers got hired and fired during it it's one of those super complicated records that had a big budget i think she was signed to a big label. They gave her a whack of dough and she just kind of went through a bunch of producers, hired, fired. The album got made a bunch of times. So I'm not even clear how much he plays on it, but I know he's involved and he was in her band. So that's why I'm recommending it. I pulled it out this week just to have another listen to it. And it really is deep and fantastic. I mean, it sounds a little bit 80s-ish, I guess, but still like her material is incredible. The band is amazing and it's definitely worth checking out. Miss America by Mary Margaret O'Hara. So that's what I got for you. And one last thing I want to mention before we get going here is there's a new podcast that we're putting out and it's called One Life. It's going to come out in October and it's really cool. I'm pretty excited about it. So basically it's one full season of this show in which one person who I know, in this case, it's musician, singer, actor, Jim Burns. I invited them in to just tell stories from their life. But while he's doing that, me and my usual crew of studio players in Vancouver improvise music while he's talking. And this went on for like eight or nine hours. <laughs> and so that's what the podcast is. It's totally improvised him telling stories off the top of his head with no script. He's not, it's, he's not reading anything. He's just like off the hip. Now, Jim, some people will know who he is. Some people will not. It doesn't matter. You got to listen to him. He's a fascinating guy. He grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, but he moved to Toronto and then Vancouver in the 70s um, after the Vietnam War, which he was in combat for. And he came back to Vancouver and is an incredible singer, blues soul singer, but also got to be known as an actor in shows like Highlander and Wise Guy. And he's been a fixture on Vancouver for a long time. I produced a bunch of records for him. So we go back quite a ways. We've worked together a ton and we just did this crazy project. And maybe it'll turn into a series where I do another season with another person. I don't know, but I finished it because I had all this time on my hands and it's cool. And it's going to be in 10 parts and it's going to all come out at once. And you can now subscribe, even though it's not out yet. There's a trailer up on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Uh, it's called One Life Season One, Jim Burns, and you can find it on both those platforms and you can subscribe now. And I'd really appreciate that because we want to have as many subscribers as we can by the time this show drops in October. So please check that out. One Life Podcast. Thank you. All right. So this week, David Pilch, let's get rolling. Um, I've known about him for, I guess, about, well, almost 20 years through his work with Bill Frizzell and T-Bone Burnett and Joe Henry, mostly. He's done tons of other stuff. He's had long standing gigs with Holly Cole and Katie Lang and people like that. But those are the records that I know him from the most or the, the Bill Frizzell, like blues dream is one of my all time favorites. And that's him and T-Bone Burnett uses him a lot and Joe Henry and a good chunk of the stuff that Joe's done over the last bunch of years features 
David on the bass. And he's very much tied in with Jay Belaros, the great drummer who's been on this show as well. And so we got to talk about all that great stuff. I, I met David pretty recently, actually, at Largo in, in Los Angeles when I was with Birds of Chicago. They were doing a show with, with Joe Henry, and I was just hanging out backstage with David, and we talked quite a bit about some old Toronto chums that we have in common, Don Rook and Jorn Anderson, who's a crazy man and an amazing drummer that we had some good laughs about. And we talk about him quite a bit in this show. Jorn Anderson, you'll hear the name come up. That's, he's a Toronto drummer, and uh, he's a very crazy man. And anyway, David's an amazing player. He's kind of all about feel and the song and being kind of invisible, but also poking out in the coolest of ways. And I just, I've always loved his playing and it was fantastic to have him on. We talked about all kinds of stuff and his brain is very crazy and works in really interesting ways. And this conversation just wildly veers into different directions. And I just went with that and it's a long one. So I'm breaking it up into two parts. And because uh, it's just it's all interesting. So you're going to hear part one right now. Uh, one week from today, I'm going to put out part two. I just didn't have time to get through it all. I will bring you part two one week from today. Here we go. Enjoy my part one of my conversation with David Pilch. So how how are you enjoying yourself? <laughs> Are you adapting? <laughs> That's actually a good word for it. I mean, I have been doing a bunch of online sessions and collaborating and things like that. You know, I, I did a bunch of stuff with Jay Belaros last week, which was really fun and interesting. And, you know, he's set up with 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 Jen at their house and he's yeah. tra- tracking there. And it and it's actually really great. Like he's got great sounds going and. And they're oh, a good, it's uh, they're a good it's little been team. great for years. Yeah. yeah, it's been great. It's been great for years. Uh, she recorded uh, uh, music from the front room. Uh, oh, really? The, oh, okay. That that uh, that record with Larry Golding's yep. Jay and I. Was done and and Jennifer engineered it. Really? Okay, that's I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize and that. we just did it, and we just did it. In, <laughs> you know that room sounds great. That's a great sounding room. Yeah, I mean she she claims complete incompetence. Like she basically says, no, that, I, I don't know yeah. anything. But but I, I well, uh, yeah. I mean you know she I also know. she'll say that about everything. You know, but <laughs> it doesn't mean she isn't a great cook, and it doesn't mean right. she isn't a great bass player and it doesn't mean i mean you know she always that's her that's her that's her way of of uh sneaking through the room that's right that's right <laughs> but she does a great job actually and and she shared i i got a lot of the files you know because we did jay and i used to do uh just duets yeah imp- we, we got really really turned on to this uh uh a milt hinton record with uh uh, which was it Joe Jones? 
it's just a duet record and oh. and we wanted we, we we heard it and we thought wow this is so cool let's 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 do some duets I don't know if we were doing them anyways or, or, or mm-hmm. and maybe the record ended up being like a kind of a template to follow or something but okay but um but we did we did do it and she recorded a lot of stuff and and there was you know she has lots of mics and she she was experimenting a lot and and uh and there's we got a lot of a lot of fun stuff good stuff it was it was really um you know something something obviously that that they are doing and can do and have been doing for a long time and then and then of course if they if they're doing stuff together it's it's fantastic you can tell they have a good time doing it and it's not like a drag for them oh oh, oh yeah and they do what they they do what they want you know it's 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 great and they've done a lot of you know they did i mean i i first met gabby moreno at their house she was just you know she was super young and they were they they basically took her, I mean, they produced her, maybe that's not her first record, but it really, in my, in my sense, it, it was, I right. mean, she was yeah. very young and, and, and they just kind of, you know, they, they, they let her do her thing and they put something around it. And I think it probably was an incredible change for her life that, you know, she it was, so. was, it? yeah, I mean, it was, it's, I don't. I've, I'm not sure what the name of that record is, but but it's um, and it must have been early on for them, something that they very seriously did like that. You know, he did take a bass lesson with Carol Kay. Who did? Jay? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, but I think that was just so he could hear her story. <laughs> I think uh, uh, maybe Jen got it for him for, for wow. his birthday or something. I'm not sure if it was actually, I want to be a bass player, but I think it was, it was good. You know how people make have lessons with people so that they can kind just of... Hang out. Uh, yeah, well, maybe he was trying to get into the wrecking crew. I mean, he was <laughs> thirty years too late, but but that that is the way people people. Those, that's the only teaching I do is when somebody calls me and and uh, and and they're you know they want to meet people in the in, that are doing stuff, right. you know. And I always yeah. wonder how come nobody ever calls me back. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever taught one lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I've only. Um, are you teaching? I teach a tiny bit. Like I teach, I enjoy, like I used to, that was like how I started making money. Basically. Like I taught guitar in Vancouver for, you know, when I was young, that was what I did. And so I'm like, I have uh, some teaching chops, but they're just really buried and I don't really remember how to do it properly. And 
I teach like I'll teach pedal steel occasionally to people. And well, you could spend a year on just putting it together, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, say to somebody, you know, okay, try and put it together. Yeah. I'll see you in an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of sessions and, you know, just trying to figure out a different way of doing things. And so what have you been doing? Like what's, what's been happening for you? Well, you know, everything stopped. All the work stopped in, in March. Yeah. I mean, it just stopped. I mean, it was kind of like you could see it's, it's just, it's interesting that denial thing. It's just like you, you're looking at it and you're going, well, you know, you've got some things coming up and you're going, well, it'll be done by then. And then it just started happening. Just yeah. things started getting canceled. And, and so there was that period of time, which was just sort of the, the writing on the wall, I suppose, yeah. you know, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and then it was, okay, now what are you going to do? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think any of us that, that, have, that have some remote, I mean, I was doing remote stuff anyways. I've, I've always had a studio and I've always oh, okay. had the capability of doing it. So it was, it was, for me, it was easier to just kind of go, okay, well, this is, this is viable. I mean, this is the thing to do. And, and it was, it was always a little bit, um, like recently I, I just done a really a beautiful, uh, bunch of things with, uh, with Patrick Warren, who was doing music for a, a television show. And he would send me, he would send me stuff to play with. And I found, I even found like a different room other than my music room. I found a, a room in the house that, that, that had it, an incredible floor that's, you know, it's kind of uh, like an oak floor and yeah. an oak floor that I almost, <clears throat> that I almost repaired because it's so loose, but I'll <laughs> tell you, you play a double bass on that floor. And, that shit sounds and, good. <laughs> uh, uh, oh man. I'll tell you, there was a, there was a bass dealer in, in, uh, in Toronto who was, who was, a, he was actually a, also a card carrying poker player, you uh, know, like he had like a, is there a card that where you can go play in, Probably. poker games around the world. Anyway, this guy, he had a look in his eye. He was George Woodall. He was fantastic. He was, had this room that it, when you played the bass, he, he, he looked at me and he said, there's no way you can't sell a bass in this room. Cause it just, <laughs> you know, the room sounds. Yeah. So a sprung, a sprung floor, man. I'm, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what that does to the sound of a bass or, or, or a corner, uh-huh. you know, a good corner. I mean, I always, I always, I grew up standing in the corner. So, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it bounces back. And if, and if you, I always go for the corner in, in a booth, you know, like, uh, and set, uh-huh. set the mic up. So, so, oh, it's, it's huge because it comes back because it comes back and then the microphone gets it, gets it from around. It's beautiful. So anyways, so I found this room in my house that I had never, you know, it's, it's funny how you get an idea of well, at the difference between your pragmatic part of your brain going, okay, this is where I stand to record mm-hmm. and your instincts of going, where does it sound good to right. record? You know, and then you start, and then you might start going, I mean, I just it never occurred to me to, to record the bass in the dining room because I had, because I have a studio, <laughs> but right. the dining room sounds amazing. Right? Wow. So I would do these, 
So I do these bass tracks with Patrick and they were just, it was like crazy how good it was. So I was kind of excited because I had never, I mean, I had done things at home and I've always done stuff. I mean, I, I traded my TAC four track tape machine in, in, uh, uh, you know, 19, 1980 for a, uh, uh, microphone. You know, a uh, beautiful Sony C thirty eight microphone. Oh, nice! And I, st- I still have that. I still have that microphone, and I'd never really figured out that the bass sounded so good with it, as long as I didn't get too close to it. And then uh-huh. if I was in a nice, and then if you're in a nice sounding room, and it was like kind of, you know, it's beautiful how it's coming together. And now people really want it like that. They don't, you know, there's no way to go to a recording studio. I haven't been to a recording studio since since March. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have, um, sessions more or tours more that all got shit canned because of all this? Uh, I had tours more. Oh, okay. You know, there's a nice scene in Los Angeles for people, you know, there's a bunch of us that, that, that like to play together and we all, we all get together at different places and play and, and, uh, and those places are small and they're, I don't know if they'll ever come back. Right. I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, your town is really like that. I mean, it's an industry there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not really an industry. In, well, it is actually in, in Los Angeles. It is in, in the sense that it's a community and the musicians are really, uh, it's not as much of a tourist industry as it is in Nashville yeah, exactly. for mu- music on the, the row or whatever. But, uh, but there is a community of musicians in LA and, and there's, you know, we all love to play. Right. And those places, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how they survived before. So I don't know how they're going to survive now. Here it's different just cause like it's way less cautious here. People are crazy and it's just like opening everywhere. So are they going out of the band's? standing in the window and playing well they were and then they've shut everything down again now because things are oh so out of control God. again so they're like flip-flopping about that and uh as, but as soon as they open stuff people just like throw all the rules out the window and they're just there like with no masks and like crammed in and partying like it's 1999 so i don't know man i don't know what's gonna happen here but they keep yeah they keep going back and forth there's certain places like the city winery is super careful I had a gig there in July with Birds of Chicago, but we actually canceled it because we just things started getting so crazy here. We none of us wanted to go out, basically, so we canceled that. Um, but that place is being pretty good. Um, Third and Lindsley is another place that's being pretty good. But the bars down on Broadway are just like if it's open, they're they're like full tilt. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, I live in Santa Barbara, and it's it's uh, it. There are areas here where it's just you know people are just you know they're out they're, they're happy to be out and uh and there are other people that are not comfortable i mean we're, we're in our family we're we're being we're very cautious and and we're not we're not ready i mean i actually i i kind of feel uncomfortable at a certain distance with people and and with with the masks i mean you know i try not to get into the, the politics of the masks right but it, it it's hard to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of stuff I, I wanted to talk to you about, but um, since we were talking about Jay, I wonder if we could maybe just talk a little bit about your, like some of the guys that you've had long-term 
experiences with, you know, like where you've done a, a bunch of records and you've really got to know each other. I know Jay is possibly the main one for you, but maybe there's another one or two around LA and, and maybe you could just talk about what that means to you, like as a bass player and, and integral part of a rhythm section, what you love about playing with a guy like that and, and how in your mind, how a rhythm section really comes together. Well, that's a good question. In a way, a lot of times with, with sessions, there's people there that you actually don't know. So I would say for the most part, my experience is that you're all of a sudden you're in you're in a situation where you have the opportunity to get to know somebody musically or you have to you are collaborating and you don't actually know them that well you know so so there there aren't that many people i mean you know i've i've been in a few bands you know so in those bands and I, I would say what happened with, with Jay was that it ended up being a recording band. Like you say, it, it, it was a regular, yeah. uh, uh, we, would, we would get all called together. I mean, there, there was, you know, there was a lot, there was a, a little bit of fluctuation there. I, I mean, mostly with me, though, it was Jay's with, with, with Joe. I mean, if Jay wasn't around, and you can, I think it's funny because I, I sometimes will hear something and there's no drums on it. And I think, oh, that was the day, <laughs> you know, Jay was on, available. he was away. He wasn't, he wasn't there that day. <laughs> so they just didn't even get anybody, you know? Uh, and that, and that's, that's great. You know, uh, one of the first guys that I, I got to play with a fair bit when I came to Los Angeles. I mean, I mean, there was a lot of that in, in Toronto, right? I was in Toronto for a long, long time. So really, before it was making records, I was, uh, you know, my brother-in-law was Terry Clark. So I played with him. I mean, I did my first gigs with, with him and, and he was, you know, who he is, right. He was, he's a Vancouver yeah. drummer that moved, moved to Toronto. And, and that, that was like kind of, a, 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 after my best friend in junior high school being a drummer, Terry was my brother-in-law and that was the guy I played with. And we did gigs. I, I became, you know, part of a rhythm section that was Bernie Sinensky and Terry and I, and we, we, we played together all the time. And then we also played in a band. I think really the first good band that I played in was, was the Ted Moses quintet. And, and my brother was in that band and, uh-huh. and Terry was in that band. And, and that was, that really was, I mean, he was a master. Terry is a master. And uh-huh. that was my regular guy to play with. And then there was a couple of other guys in town that were incredible. There was, again, another Vancouver guy, Jerry Fuller was there. And, and uh, I mean, Jerry used to sing me the bass notes for the songs that I didn't know when I was struggling to play a ballad medley with uh, Scott Hamilton and Warren Bechet or Zoot Sims or somebody where I didn't know any of the tunes. He would just, and Jerry he would, would be singing, Jerry would be humming the bass notes to me. <laughs> wow. You know, That's... so the, yeah. So, so also, I also wanted to be a drummer. So I loved, oh. I loved the drummer. Yeah. It was a big, I, I, I somehow didn't, I mean, I played, I played them as a kid. I made them. I, that's what I wanted to do. So the, so the relationship with the drums was in a good way. It would become a, a, a blurred 
relationship where where the instruments are are percussive, like very percussive sonically and and uh, the relationship in the parts it it becomes a percussive thing not not a separate thing of course yeah and that actually isn't it isn't always the best thing for every drummer so so i started learning you know that that relationship or sensing that that relationship it's very you know it's very close it's a very yeah it's a very married relationship. I mean, it's like it's like the center and the quarterback a little bit. Well, totally. maybe not like that, but but it's you know you really are in e- in each other's. You're working together. So so if you're doing things, and I I tend to approach things um, really from from that percussive place, hmm. then then the relationship is even more. It's even more um, more intense. Uh, it's more intense, and it's and it it has the potential to be great, and it also has the potential to to not be great. I mean, the bass player. It's very difficult for the bass player to to subdivide as much as the drummer can do it, mm-hmm. unless the bass player plays more notes. Right. Uh, which, of course, you know, I mean, that's and it's completely possible to do that. But but that that's the only way to take, um, to to lean in to the metric, you know, to the pulse. If you if you want to create the pulse, you have to be subdividing more. Or, or yeah, I mean, you could be louder. That could be something that you could do. Mm-hmm. I guess you could just play one note every bar really loud. But I mean, I think I, I've always felt that it was the subdividing that really sort of dictated where the meter was. The syncopation and more than the, more it, than the actual. No, the sub, the subdividing. I, I wouldn't call it syncopation. I would just call it subdividing. Who's dividing the meter up into smaller pieces oh, okay, so that I the meter, so that the meter is regular. So if yeah. the, if the drummer like, um, like our friend Yorn that we talked mm-hmm. about when we were at Largo, his hi-hat would always be playing eighth notes, almost like a traditional drummer plays quarter notes. You know, a jazz drummer, even if uh, if he's going ding, 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 the tra- traditional jazz drummer would be going boom, 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 but you wouldn't hear it. It's very soft, yeah. but he's playing the quarter He's playing the quarter note. So Yorn used to do that with the hi hats, right? Okay. Jay does that with Jay does that with a shaker. Right. Yeah. He rarely has a hi hat. Right. But he subdivides with a hi hat the way people like to have a shaker in. I mean, it was heaven for me the first time I heard it because it made it made me. It was very. I mean, I, I I feel his meter. So so the meter, but it's also there. It's it's there. It's like it's like having a shaker. That 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 helps you. It it can get a little different when when uh, like Abe Abe Laboriel Jr. Very little of that. His feel is very sort of um, it's it's kind of more uh, open to me. Okay. To me, it was. Yeah. Uh, there would be less of that less of that subdivided regular something playing it. Right. Uh, I'm not sure how he developed that, but, and 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 some drummers that I've worked with that that don't subdivide a lot. I I uh, it, it can feel uh, like 
like you're not sure exactly where it is. So, or, you know, if somebody's doing it and they do it really loud, it can be difficult to be around or, yeah. or if, you know, there's so many different balances of that. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that, that affects what you, what you do. Of course. You know? Yeah. You know, there was many, many years where it, it just seemed like the bass and the bass drum were required to play the same thing at the same time yeah or, <laughs> or as, as dean parks once said to me when he was producing something and he said that's <laughs> so funny he wanted me to play something with the bass drum because i've kind of gotten in a lot of ways i've actually kind of oh not play with the bass drum because it to me it's more it's more interesting to get a part that where where the instruments especially the ones that sonically although it can sound so amazing when things do the same thing like a like a like a like a pump organ and a bowed bass or a pedal steel and a fretless bass those things to me are very similar and of course a bass drum and a bass if the sound works together it can be great but it isn't but i mean it was like the law it was like you have to go dump that dump at the same time or but the Dean wanted something like that. And he said, um, maybe you could uh, support your local drummer just a bit more. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> it was so great. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, like, I you know, it. around here in Nashville, anytime I'm, I do like, like a full on music row session where I don't know the artist and I just go in and play some steel or whatever. And it's always mandatory that the drums the the kick drum and the bass are just like playing exactly the same thing and it's is it is it is oh yeah it still like that oh yeah yeah and if, and if it's yeah, not I'll they'll just you. they'll sit there yeah. and line that shit up in the computer you know like that's well that's what they do. i mean you know those were uh, i mean you know um so i remember a session in the in in the 80s and and you're and this is where i noticed it because the guy who was doing it was was ian thomas and Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, this is like, you know, nine hours on one song. And, oh, my God. And then taking it home to the studio. And I'd, I'd gone over to do a, an overdub or something. And he had he had um, soloed Yorn's hi-hat. And it was driving him nuts. Because Yorn, you know, he rocks his foot on his hi-hat. I mean, one of the great, I mean, this guy, this guy was like, he had Stuart Copeland energy. I mean, this guy, incredible, right? Yeah. What a great drummer, you know, and 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 somebody's like picking apart the one track and going, you know, you know, well, I don't don't solo it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing needs to live you know, in context of what's going on in the yeah. big picture. Yeah. Although I have to say, you know, in in the stuff that I'm doing now, I find I have to start. I have to listen to my. Um, tracks before i send them off because i got i have to make sure that there's nothing wrong technically yeah right so so you know i i have to go through them which which i i always had a really hard time like soloing the bass could drive if you ever want me to leave the room i mean it's (laughs) it's for an egomaniac it it is an interesting kryptonite to uh to to just solo them to get them to leave right yeah but uh but I couldn't, uh, I couldn't, I could never handle it. It was always, there were always things about it. Maybe it's just about getting used to it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know how you hear first, maybe the first experience you have 
with this perspective is hearing your own voice on tape. Do right. you remember that very it's first shocking. time you heard yourself talk? Yeah, it's shocking. Okay, well, well, you don't hear it the same way that other people hear it or the way you hear it when you hear it from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. The way you hear while you're playing is part of the evolution as a player and as a listener. So you start as a, as a child sitting in front of your amplifier and all you hear is the sound that you're making through the amplifier. Mm -hmm. You don't even hear the things that you're playing with. Kind of like when you put little kids on a basketball court, they just run around. They don't know they're supposed to go that way or this way. Or it's, it's kind of funny. You go, wow, they have no idea what's going on here. You know? <laughs> so, so with music, it's, it's a little bit like that. I mean, right. you know, I mean, you start immediately maybe with lessons and somebody goes, okay, do this and do that. But I mean, the whole thing about listening and what is in tune. Okay. In tune is not just tuning up your instrument. It's listening to what's going on around you mm -hmm. and listening to what's in tune. That's yeah. what in tune is. It isn't, it isn't just that you have a tuner and you tune up. It's, it's that you listen and that you hear what's happening. But to get, to be able to do that, if you're trying to remember what notes to play, I mean, actually the same thing can happen. Like, like when, when I have to read something that I, I find difficult to read, mm -hmm. it changes the way that I listen. Yeah. It changes the way that I access my intuition. It all changes because, because the, um, my ability to, to execute while I'm doing something that I find difficult changes. Maybe because you're using a different part of your brain or something like something. It is. In that, I mean, I, yeah. I remember having a very long conversation with someone. It was a great drummer in, in Toronto named Kevin McKenzie. And he, he, t he sat me, we, we had a really, I've had some of my best, you know, some great conversations with drummers in, in, uh, you know, in between takes in the booth or, sure. or, or, or something, you know, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. Actually. It, it, it I, I really have learned so much from, from all the drummers. And, and, and this guy was the first guy to say, you know, you play really different when you're reading. Huh. It's so different, you know? And I, you know, I was never, I was never really a comfortable reader. I, I, I never really worked at it. I'm self-taught. Yeah. So, so I didn't go to school and, and I, I sort of, I, I mean, I did come up in an old school time where, where, every mostly everything was written if it was a recording session okay so i would i would struggle i mean i, I would i mean like you I would show up at, at sessions and they would actually have a baseline written out for you to play oh my god yeah that's what everything was like that that's what Crazy. it was like that's that's why that's why for a long time in the 60s it was you know the jazz players at least in toronto they were they were trained and they could read and they did all the studio work because they could play different styles of music and they could read. Yeah. Yeah. But they did it because they could read. And then they did a lot of the stuff that they weren't really, that they didn't like doing like the, 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 the you know, any of the contemporary music that they w didn't really like, but yeah. they could read. So they did. So it was all the jazz players because they mostly had been trained. I wasn't, I mean, you know, my brother was, 
and my sister was trained. My sister did classical music all the way up to the top. She still plays and teaches she's a, and plays She's a flutist, right? And a pianist. And, oh. and she went to the conservatory downtown in Toronto every week. And I would go and run around in the basement because I, I, she was having a lesson. But I never took lessons. My, my, my lessons, just I just was the third child. And it was just not. I, I was born in 1960. My father, he was a studio musician. And by the time it came to me, I think he was, he had a different approach <laughs> about, it was that it was a yeah. reflection of where he was, where he was at. I learned bluesette when I was seven. Wow. So it's not like I didn't learn stuff. I learned stuff at home and I learned it either my brother teaching it to me or. Were you playing bass at that point? Yeah, I, I was at I was at nine. I mean, I took some trumpet. <laughs> I took some trumpet lessons at uh, with actually the greatest trumpet player. His name is Fred Stone. He was really, really good. Did you go? You didn't go to Humber, right? Did you? No. But Freddie Stone gave up playing. Freddie Stone was a freak. He was amazing. Really. And he's yeah, he's great. And he's on this fantastic record um, that um, Duke Ellington came up to Toronto to record with the Ron Collier Orchestra oh, yeah. in 1969 and he was a soloist uh, it's called it's called North of the Border this incredible record Freddie is all over this record And he ended up joining Duke's band. Really? <laughs> there's, a, there's a YouTube. There's a YouTube where where uh, where Duke announces him because he he took like Freddie actually he got the gig in the band. He went he went out and toured with Duke in the seventies. And actually, Ron Collier wrote a bunch of charts with with uh, 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 with Duke. There's some stuff out there that they did with the uh, 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 Detroit Symphony. But this record, North of the Border, was kind of the the very sort of first, oh my God, this was such a great jazz record. And, and I, I mean, jazz was part of what was going on in my house because that's what my father did. So he was a jazz player too, that was doing sessions. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean. Albums or like, or like jingles and stuff. Well, you know, it depend on, depended on the era because in, in, uh, as I was growing up in the sixties, it would have been, it, it would have been still quite a bit of local jazz stuff okay. and big band stuff and uh, uh, lots of shows. He did lots of shows. I, I went to lots of shows and I was in the, I mean, I was in the pit on stage for hair. My father was the MD really? for that, that, that ran at the Royal Alex theater. And yeah. as a matter of fact, I ended up the most beautiful electric bass that I own came from uh, uh, a guy that had that gig and he threw in a B18, the Ampeg B18 nice. to go with this beautiful, this beautiful, it still had the orange paint on it from the, uh, from the, from that, it, it sat on that, 
on that stage during that show. Wow. And I was a little kid and I was in the pit and I saw that. So I saw these guys. I mean, that really was my education because yeah, that's I would go to work. Heavy. I would go to work with my father. He didn't, he, um, uh, he didn't live with us. And the only time I would see him, he would take us, he would take me to work. So I'd go to see TV shows and, and I'd be in the pit. I mean, being in the pit while a show is going on is I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of TV. There was, there was, uh, uh, God, there was a bunch of music television shows. As a matter of fact, when my father, he died in 1983. Okay. And the CBC, somebody at the, at the CBC gave my brother all these archival DVDs. No, they weren't DVD. No, they VHS. I think I had a friend of mine transfer them, but they're all, all archives that my father was in all these different TV shows. Yeah. I, I actually, I do there, a lot of them are on a YouTube channel that I start, that I have. And I started editing this stuff up because it was really fascinating for me. Cause a lot of the stuff went earlier. Like there's some beautiful stuff of Sonny Greenwich and, oh, wow. and, uh, and Ed Bickert, Ed Bickert was gorgeous, in that scene, right? Yeah. There's black and white. There's some black and white TV. Uh, there's a guy. Did you ever hear this guy's name, Jimmy Dale? Uh, I don't think he was. A, think he, so. he was one of the traditional classic TV MDs. Okay. You know, he this this guy could write. This guy could write a chart while the radio is on playing a different <laughs> song while he's driving to work. Right. <laughs> I mean, when you ask me if, if things were written out, yeah, they were written out, you know, I, and I, and it was difficult for me. I mean, I would, I would, you know, I had to sub for, for a guy on a TV show with my dear friend, Lawrence Shrek, who, who moved to LA a, a few years before I did. He really helped me out a lot when I moved there, but, but he, he and I had been working together and he used to work with my father. He's kind of in between our age. So he was friends with my dad and he was friends with me and I started playing with him. He's connected. It's funny. There's just all these connections because he's really good friends with Ben Mink, who we ought to talk about later. Yeah. If I forget, remind me. I will. Okay? I will. Yeah. He's on, he's on the radar for things I wanted to ask you about. The combination of people being classical players and jazz players, really. I mean, that, mm. I'm going to have to say that uh, now it's different, but at that time yeah. it was really rare. You know, it was very rare. What it was? was not really, it was very separate, you know? Oh, so, I see what you mean. So, so D- Dave Young was one of the first guys that for me had, I bet. had He's... you know, he was a jazz player and he was a classical guy. So he right. had this TV gig and, and I was subbing on it and I went in there and there was the, the first thing they did was when they got to getting the sounds on the microphone, the, the engineer said, uh, my friend Lawrence still busts my chops for this. Uh, it, 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 they said, you know, can we hear something in the first, first, first cue I had was with the bow, which I'm telling you, I can make, I can make like a sick cow sound like a, like an opera singer, you know? I mean, really with a bow, it's really a scary thing. I had to really develop my own voice with the bow. <laughs> I couldn't play with a bow. Of course I would always just, you know, I would get a gig. This was kind of like my life for a really, really long time. I would get a gig where there was something I had to do. And I would just basically 
take a, you know, I would go, okay, I'll practice for five minutes how to do this, you know, like yeah. whether it's reading odd time signatures or nothing. I never had, I mean, I was working. So I didn't study stuff. I only had the stuff, the tools that I had from, from being 15 years old, you know, right. I mean, I had some tools and I had some cultural musical abilities i certainly had the ability to be in the room and know what was going on because i'd gone to work with my dad so i knew what what was going i mean i knew there was a chair that you were supposed to go to that had a microphone and that you stand there and that and then and that you make a joke you know yeah, so yeah. so i would uh, i would I, I could do that you know but i mean so were you getting sessions when you were when you were 15 no, I was getting sessions when I was 17 Okay, and wow. 16. No, seven. I would say 17. Yeah. I did the first jingle. I did my first jingle with Doug Riley and I was probably 17. So and you, you, you claim to not be a good reader. Like what would, what would go through your mind and what would you do at that point when you were basically like, it sounds like you were kind of learning on the, on the job essentially it was but it was when abso- someone absolutely it was that no i mean it, it, i was i was desperate and also i was i was also young so i didn't really give a shit when right. i was not at work i would just go i would just i mean you know i did stuff that i can't even believe i survived you know like uh, but you could read well enough to get through a session well i could read well enough to <laughs> I guess, you know, like, what, I mean, one time somebody <laughs> had written out something and I couldn't read it at all. I, it, I, really? It, I couldn't read it at all. And, and, the, and Guido Basso, the, you know, the great Guido Basso, who yeah. was, you know, a really good friend of my dad's, he could see I was dying, you know, like, I mean, I just didn't, I couldn't play it. And he came over to me and he said, Dave, it's, it's just a jazz waltz. So, so the person had written it out. Wow. They had written da, they had written da, 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 you know, they wrote all the, all the kind of. The articulation and everything. All that stuff that you would write, like for a string player. This guy was a pretty straight writer. So that's how he did it. He thought, okay. well, this is what I want the bass to sound like. So he wrote it out and I couldn't read it at all. All I had, all I had to know was that, um, that it was a waltz and that, that it, and he sang me maybe, you know, he hummed. and then you're like, Oh, I can do that. Yeah. So I, right. I basically just did, did that. And then I would maybe pick out things, little bits uh, there was a band that I was in, the Ted Moses band, and he he had also a big band, mm-hmm. uh, Ted. And this this was man, I'll tell you, I was definitely seventeen, and these were big band charts, and I would get lost all the time. I mean, I just would get lost, and his stuff was hard on the bass. I remember g- coming up to him once, and I was maybe almost in tears, and oh, I man. said, "Why why am I doing this?" Why do you want me to do this? <laughs> yeah. why, why am I here? Why am I here? And he said, man, just relax. Like it's, you know, you, whatever you do, if you, if you, if you get lost or something, you know, you always have some kind of a, an instinct to, to find your way. I mean, that, that I started learning how to do. I started 
learning how. So he's, he sensed your musicality over anything else and realized like, exactly. This guy's got it going that, on. That, he may, and, he may fuck up some changes here and there, but he's going to get me to the end of the song. Well, and honestly, I, I have to say, I, I think that that, that is kind of has been my whole, that, that, my relationship to how familiar I am with the music mm-hmm. has been mostly that has been what are your instincts what can you hear yeah not that it's a studying thing i i actually think now i am studying things now that i have time right now i am looking at things i know exactly what i want to practice mm-hmm. i mean i practice exactly what i want to practice now and and it's all based on all those years of of just going okay i Okay, I'll leave that out. I mean, that's the, that's that that was survival. I mean, there's a lot of survival skills necessary. Absolutely. You know, I know and, that feeling uh, exactly. Like when I go into a session and I'm playing pedal steel, and somebody puts notes in front of me, I, I know I'm screwed. So I have to like kind of pick out the highlights <laughs> of the things that I I I think they want to hear, and then I just make the rest of it up and hope they don't know that I'm not playing what they had in mind. <laughs> I remember this. Uh, this session with uh, the Manhattan transfer with Craig street. And th- those were during the years where, where there were never any arrangements and nobody, uh, we always, everybody, it was kind of, you know, Craig street was, was Craig street produced scar. Um, yep. Joe Henry scar. Yeah. And very much out of the T bone and, uh, uh-huh. and Joe Henry, very similar, uh-huh. you know, and uh, on this Manhattan transfer, gig, <laughs> they did they, insisted that they have an arrangement for some one of the songs they just wanted to do because they i think they thought it was all nuts you know like how is it that you i mean remember they were all walking around going well who's you know who's running this show like who's writing the charts and 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 it was just you know we just didn't do it that way you've gone fishing there's a sign up upon your door gone fishing Oh yeah, that's me. You ain't working anymore. I'm on vacation. Cows need milking in the barn, but you just don't give a darn. You just never seem to learn. You ain't got no ambition. Gone fishing. There's your. I mean, with Craig, that's how it started for me with Craig. I think that kind of production, where you really were just encouraged. To come in, which of course, when I discovered that, that that's what I was comfortable doing. I mean, that you know, that's when my days as a session player changed. I mean, yeah, I came down to L.A. I sure as hell didn't take Neil Steubenhaus's work, uh-huh. or 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 anybody that was a reading bass player. Yeah, I mean, I I, I maybe thought that that's what I was going to do and be a session guy, but that's not what I that's not what I was good at. Uh-huh. But there were many many years where where I struggled with it and, and it helped me to, to be comfortable with who, who I was, you know, so that I would be able to do these kinds of things where now that is the norm is is not, is not to have charts. So yeah, I, I struggled through that stuff, but anyways, some, somebody did a wicked, you know, like a real full on, you know, eight pages of charts. (laughs) And I think there were two guitar players. I'm trying to think if there were three, but I can only remember Smokey Hormel and Greg Leese 
both, I remember standing there just laughing <laughs> at these guys trying to look at these fucking charts. <laughs> it was just so crazy, you know? But I mean, that's what I did all the time. I mean, with the Ted Moses band, we'd rehearse and they'd put the chart out and they all sensed, they could all tell and they, they, they would all leave. We always rehearsed at Ted's house and, and they would all leave and go into the kitchen and let they figure it out. Really? You know? I, yeah. I just would, I, you know, I would just, it was like, it was hard music. This stuff was hard. It was like Eberhard Weber oh ECM God. hard. Wow. It was hard. And I, and there were chords that had, you know, there's this one song. Oh, it's a beautiful song. It's called Soliloquy. And it's on my, my, it, I, I tried to find a recording of it, but this band, Ted's band was very underrecorded. It was really a popular band in the seventies in Toronto. Uh, and yeah. And, and it was really, it was really great. And, and before I was in it, it was really great. Like I was thrilled to be in it, uh -huh. but then when I was in it, I, all these charts were just insanely Terrifying. hard for me. Yeah. Terrifying. And this song soliloquy, which actually I, I, I heard it recently. It's on my brother's 1988 record oh. that he did with Duke, Duke street. It's called soliloquy. this song and you can hear i mean in a way you can hear how i could do it it's not like playing zappa like if i was in zappa's band they'd kill me right but in this band in this band it was like there'd be like a pedal tone that would go for like 11 bars and there would be five different types of chords on top of uh -huh. each pedal tone yeah. so i'd be playing this song and i'd never know where i was i just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I'd be playing the right note. Yeah, and you can hear like it's it, it's just like it, it 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 the whole beginning of the song goes over a pedal tone. Only it's all the chords are polychords, and I would just be I, I would just be hanging on for fucking dear life. I, I mean, it. I was so happy when eventually I found. That I could, you know, when I got into bands and I could rehearse and I could learn things and go back to the way that I was kind of brought up playing, which was with my eyes closed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge, you know, I mean, the reading thing always, yeah. But I mean, I still have to do it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I played at the Hollywood Bowl with Randy Newman sitting underneath his cousin, David Newman, with a book full of charts and, songs and 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 I had to I had to do it You know, I mean, I had time. I had time to listen to stuff. If I was sight reading it, 
I probably couldn't do it. And I have a tremendous, tremendous respect. But I've never really appreciated people that said that say that they don't read when I think it's more that they can't read. Because I always felt that it was kind of like saying, oh, I don't fix my own car. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, can you fix your own car? I get it. There are some people, they, they walk into work, they want to see a chart. You know, Nick Payton walked into that uh, bright Mississippi session and everybody else, nobody, everybody had learned all the music themselves. And he walked in, he was coming to work and he was like, where's the chart? Wow. You know, he's got to play the melody. Yeah. Fucking Alan, Alan Toussaint just <laughs> scribbled it out in about five yeah, minutes. But, you know, but I mean, that's not the way we were working. And I, I love that, that we were not doing that. I mean, yeah. it, it was, it, that's why I was there. That's one of the things that I'm good at is, is like, you know, listening to something. I'm really good at forgetting however it was supposed to go. So I don't end <laughs> up going, I'm not the guy that ends up going, doesn't this go like this? I mean, to me, that's always been one of the least uh, useful uh, things to be able to do is correct people and, and tell them how something is supposed to go based on the, the demo. Right. You know? I mean that's always a tricky moment, don't you find? Like when you when you go in and that's why I don't that's why I don't do demos. I mean we call it chasing the demo. Right. You know, it's like, well, if you want the demo, use the demo. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, I had a wicked, wicked experience with that. Trial by fire. Am I jumping around too much? No, please continue. Okay. Trial by fire with that. What what, what for me, because I because there's a balancing it. I mean, there's the I didn't listen to it because I don't want to sound like that. Mm -hmm. There's the, well, I, I, that's somebody else. And I can't do that. If right. you want that guy, get that guy. I mean, yeah. These are all things that people, you know, you kind of, you, 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 you have to, like, do I say that? Or do I not say that? <laughs> or mm -hmm. Do I need to believe that? Or should I try and do that? I mean, I always, for, for the longest time, I just felt like it was, and, it, and I'm sure it came from my father's sideman mentality. You try and figure out a way to do it so that you can, you can get through it and that make it musical. And, you know, he had a great joke. I mean, even if somebody says something to you, you know, like he, he had this great line, you know, you can tell me all you want, you know, but, but what, when the red light goes on, I'm the boss. Because, <laughs> so I mean, when it comes down to it, like you have to, it has to come through you, you know? So, so you are the boss. Like if you can, if you can take direction, if you can hear, if you can read stuff that people want you to do. Uh, anyways, I was going to tell you this story that the trial by fire for yeah. me with the demo was, was, it was a wicked trial. And it was, it was, um, uh, the guy that produced the, uh, uh, Katie Lang, the two records that I did first with her, 
absolute torch and twang and ingenue. His name is Greg Penny. And after I moved to California, he was one of the reasons I moved to California because he lived in Ojai. Oh. And, uh, and I wanted to play on records like the way I was playing on those records. Those were the first records that I made where you could spend a day making, playing three songs, four songs and comfortable and the sound, you know, I mean, I had never, I mean, well, there was an evolution for me, but, and we should talk about it because those things were not prioritized for me at the beginning because it was jingles and it was, um, uh, it was the eighties when there were no amps, it was complete, uh, you know, the analog was disappearing yeah. It was guys programming keyboard basses. It was it was not a record making environment for me until wait a minute. I still didn't tell the story. Don't you want me to tell the story? I do want to hear the story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's so, backtrack to your backtrack. So there, uh, so there were there were these so Greg Penny was producing Paul Paul Young, you know. Oh yeah. And uh and the only Paul Young I knew was from Every Time You Go Away, which has this iconic Pino Palladino before he had his, uh, before he changed from Pino Palladino, the fretless player with uh-huh. the octave divider to Pino Palladino, the P bass with Third the, uh, yeah. you know, just fuck. He's just so great. So, but even back then, even before, I mean, I'm a really huge very very uh, a big major admirer of his i mean at first i didn't like it because one of the first jingles i had to do somebody said we're looking for the every every time you go away and i played a lot of fretless bass at that time so i was it was hard for me to to have somebody go can you do that you know and i did did i wasn't really good at doing that but so i had i had already had kind of a thing with not wanting to do that Mm-hmm. Right. So I went over to do this record. So he obviously had played with Paul Young and there were all these demos. There were, there was demos of every song and I had a cassette tape and there was one demo that sounded like a finished record. There, everything else was like, sounded like demos and yeah. you couldn't tell who was what it just, you know, it was like learn the songs mm-hmm. and I would listen and I'd listen a lot. And I would always, to me, there was a very serious attention to trying to, understand the structure of the song because i am a slow learner when it comes to that and i and that will shut me down just as fast as reading a chart if i don't understand how the song is constructed okay and so i will listen a lot just to try and understand how the songs are constructed um partially i think because i came from a jazz background a lot and there was a lot of years where it was all just a a b a i didn't even think of songs as verses and and choruses and bridges and middle eights and and stuff like that and certainly lyrics i hadn't listened i don't think i even heard a word until i started playing with holly cole i never even listened to any of the words Mm -hmm. i didn't even know songs had words except for except for the stuff on the radio (laughs) um so i go over there and to record and it's we're at uh a rehearsal studio and I get a sense in the rehearsal that the one song that is sounds like a master, this song has a different relationship to this guy. Mm-hmm. And the song was 
absolutely inaccessible to me as a player. I, I, it was too hard. It was Pino. It's this incredible song called Coralie. Mm -hmm. And, and I listened to it and I thought, well, I mean, the first thing I thought of was, well, I can't do that. So I'm not even going to try. This is the, this is the demo that you've been given. This is the demo that I've been given. And this is me going into the rehearsal and I go, and I make up the decision because I'm still, I'm still like trying to figure out what, what it is I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, like, am I supposed to transcribe it? Well, my experience tells me, no, that's not why you're here. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't do that. And then at the rehearsal, I get the sense that he really knows this song. Like he, he's pretty like, you know, he's pretty low key about all the stuff, you know, but this song, he goes, you know, there's a thing here and there's a thing there. And I, that was my, that was my message right there. I missed the, I missed the message because I went into the session and I did not really, I did not break this thing down mostly because I, I couldn't, I would, I would have to transcribe it and I would have to learn it. And there's arpeggios that, that are building a bass part. It's an absolutely genius part. It's just beautiful. It's like Bach. It just sort of every verse it gets a bit more complicated it's gorgeous you know and i loved it and i just you know i was kind of in awe of this guy and i was like fuck no that's not what i do i mean i play a fender fender jazz bass with flat strings i sometimes play with a pick if i'm trying to play music that i'm trying to make sound like i'm not swinging yeah. and that's where that's where my head was at this is my thing you know yeah so so i go into the session well, it's at Air Studios in London, and oh, wow. and uh, Jeff Beck is recording down the hall <laughs> with Pino Palladino. Oh my God! <laughs> Pino's in the lounge, hanging out with yeah. us. Have you ever seen this guy? You know, six foot five. Sure. Pino is in the lounge, yeah. And he's—I mean, it's just like it's like literally know, larger than life. <laughs> he's larger than life, you know. And I'm having to play this song, right? So we go out on the floor and then, and then I get, I start getting it, you know, from Paul, uh, could you, there's a thing and he's singing me. He knows the bass part. Paul knows the bass part, note for note. So you're screwed. I go into the lounge then with, uh, the guitar player was Robbie McIntosh. And I'm basically like, I don't know what, like I have tried to walk into this as a, as an independent, okay, this is, you know, you want me, you hired me. Mm-hmm. You, do you know what I mean? Which, yeah, which is something, you know, I've heard it, I've heard it done. I've, I've heard Yorn do it. I've heard, I've heard people do it. I've heard people say, here, you play it. I've, I've heard people say you want somebody else, but I, those words have never come out of my mouth, mm-hmm. you know? So I go into, I go into, to, to Robbie and I said, what the, what do I do? I said, I, I mean, 
I don't know what to do. Like, can't we just get him to come and play it? He's right, right here. down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> He's right here. And he was so encouraging. And he said, try and get it together. And I, I think maybe I asked if we could do it the next day. Yeah. And I, and I put on the, you know, the headphones and, and I, tr- I mean, you know, and of course that for me is that, de- I mean, that's not an easy thing. I mean, I only now know how to do that. I never did that. I never did that with any of the stuff I liked. Uh-huh. All of the stuff I loved that was really complicated. I never figured it out. I never figured out the Jocko stuff or the Scott LaFaro stuff or any of it. I didn't, I didn't have that aptitude to figure it out. I could hear things and kind of go, I love this. And I, and there's certain things that I could emulate and as a, as a learning player, yeah. I mean, I'm all, I, I may have backed up too far for you because I mean, to me, getting to where you are is a huge part of where you are. Of course. So for me, the getting to where I did know what I was where what I was getting into and what I was doing, all of these things were a huge part of it. Surviving them were a huge part of it. And and also having positive experiences and having people teach you things, helping you with things. There were always people there that were that were helpful. And uh whether it was the sounds that you were getting or uh the instruments that you were playing or the parts that you were playing, that was all part for me of being encouraged. And, and I think also the encouragement comes from if you are instinctive as a player. That's a huge part of it. Well, that was a huge part of what I, I did, that, that eventually your instincts will lead you hopefully into a good place. So, so like I said, I mean, I came to LA to be a session player, but I ended up part of a group of people that all just hear music and share music and collaborate i mean i've i've worked with uh i remember earl harvin on a on a liz wright record he's a drummer coming over and saying you know why don't you why don't you try this you know let's Mm. you know like coming up with an idea for the bass part i mean to me this was i mean it was beautiful you know the the collaboration like being in a band yeah i get that so what happened with this session so you went home that night and like learned the the Pino part yeah. did it? Yeah, I tried. I tried. <laughs> no, it's not on the record. And oh. I mean, I played it. I yeah. tried. I tried. I mean, I did try. I didn't, I didn't not try. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it was successful because I can't find a version of that. Did, did he end up um, just getting Pino to do it or did, did he just? No, I think that I think it was political. Really. I think he didn't own the master. Okay. He wanted to use, I mean, I think he loved it, but he didn't own that master. Okay. And he wanted to recut it and he tried to recut it and he couldn't. Right. It does exist out there. I did listen. I did hear because, because I, because Pino's been in LA and he was working uh, up with um, uh, Blake, Blake Mills. Mills. Yeah. Yeah. He was up there with Blake and, and I was working up there and I got to tell him the story. Cause I mean, I just, he, of course he's just so he, 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 he like some of the other great, great bass players that I've met. They all just—they're so used to people just coming up to them and telling them yeah. how this changed their life and how that changed their life. That he thought I was just kind of—he, I—he uh, just didn't know what I was talking about. But, <laughs> but I, I, I just thought that that whole thing was just so amazing. And and I just love—I've always kind of loved him for the relationship that he's made me have with my own voice. 
right, right. <laughs> you know, he's been really great for that. And I have a huge, yeah, yeah. and it wasn't easy, you know, it wasn't easy to turn 16 and hear Donna Lee on the fretless bass when nobody was doing anything like that. It's not easy to have your voice after you hear somebody else's voice that's so, so incredible. I mean, you know, like so specific. I mean, Jocko Pistorius in 1970 was, yeah. I mean, for a bass player, it was just like, I mean, for me, for a young bass player, it just flipped, it flipped my lid, you know? Yeah. Fortunately, I had a kind of a weirdly schizophrenic thing going on because I always, the upright bass was always there. So there, if it wasn't just Jocko, it was also Niels Henning Orson Pedersen, who's, there's a record called, um, uh, I think it's called Duet with Kenny Drew, where he plays Niels Henning. You know, he played with Oscar Peterson and he's a Danish bass player yeah. of the many great Danish bass players. Of which you probably know. Do you know Torben Oxball? Sure, yeah, I do. Yeah, well, he was like the Danish thing is so heavy, right? And and Niels was ridiculous. Like for me, Niels Henning was first before I realized that it all came from Ray Brown. Oh, uh, okay. And and Don Thompson, who really was my mentor in Toronto, another Vancouver. You know, all the guys came to. They all came to Toronto in in the seventies. Right. right. You know yeah. that, right? All the well, Vancouver I guys. I didn't, I didn't realize all those guys were from Vancouver. Yeah. Okay. You didn't know Don was? No. Oh, Don and Terry, Vancouver. Okay. So as you were learning this stuff and like, you know, getting into playing the bass and gigging and, and working in the studios and stuff, did you never have a period where you like tore apart Ray Brown bass lines and like, no, them? interesting. No. Okay. Yeah. Cool. No, I, I just, no. I mean, I, I mean, I also, I could barely learn. I mean, you know, I, I was working six nights a week, you know, those gigs with uh, Chet Baker and Art Pepper and, and, uh, yeah, you played uh, with all those guys, right? A, a lot of, there was a club in Toronto. Uh, I mean, that was really my school was that because I don't know how I got into that. I mean, I just lucked. I, I did. Like I said, I, Terry started going out with my sister. He came over to jam at the house. I was 17, 16, maybe 16. Just a kid. And then I did my first gig with, with Don, who was who was the bass player. And he also played vibes and he played piano. Mm-hmm. And I did my very first jazz gig with Don and Ed Bickert. And, wow. And, and, and right in the middle, I mean, you know, the first thing, you know, Ed, Ed was a, did you ever get to see him? Or I never, I never did get to see him, but I've heard tons of his recordings and stuff. And he's, he's incredible, man. Yeah, he's incredible, and also he had he was he had a sensitivity and a genius that was again. I wish I could apologize to him for <laughs> for not knowing for not knowing the right notes for the songs, you know. And and you know there was no fake book. I mean, the first time, I mean, there was you know you couldn't 
it wasn't like that. You couldn't do a gig like that and go, okay, wait a minute, let me get my fake book out. It was part of the tradition was, okay, we have a little lamb here. Yeah. Let's slaughter him up good. Wow. Now, I mean, there, there, I mean, there were, there was, was a bit of that. There was a bit of the ballad medley thing where he would just, I would just be dead. Right. But I didn't go home and learn the songs. Some of the people did. I did not. Okay. I was too, I don't know what it, what it was. I, I have to say, I think, I think it may have been arrogance, but I'm not sure. <laughs> and uh, I had enough talent or, or, you know, nobody, nobody sat me down and said, look, man, you got to get this together, you yeah. know, but I would, or somehow maybe I, I got through. I mean, I listened to stuff from that era and I think, well, man, I had chops, you know, and, and, and I could, you know, I could play solos and I, I was into it and I loved it. But I mean, the education didn't come from me transcribing stuff. It only came from going to see those guys play because my dad would take uh, me to the jazz clubs and I would see Don. And there was a French Canadian guy who was a Ray Brown Mingus kind of guy, powerhouse, mm. not like a Scott LaFerrell guy like Don was, uh, you know impeccable melodies and up high and thumb position and just crazy shit. But Michelle Donato was, was like a powerhouse. So I had those two guys and you know, I don't know if you had the opportunity to learn by watching people and listening. Did uh, you ever? Not, to a certain extent, I, I sort of did, but not really in that way where you're like, you're really young and impressionable and you're seeing this like up close like that. I didn't really have that. Well, that was it for me. I mean, between doing it at home, like, and then going home and then having your older brother say, no, it's this note. And that, mm -hmm. I mean, Rob was, Rob was straight up. He right. was three years older and he would say, this is what it is. And don't do that and do this. And, 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 you know, and we would play those tunes, yeah. you know, so that, so my education was at home in the music room with my brother and my father who would play tunes with us. Yeah. And. And then going to the clubs and seeing those guys play. And that was the up. That's when I started playing the upright bass. Uh, I played electric bass first and really, you know, I loved, I didn't realize it till later that it was, it was the boogaloo and the blues from the early Led Zeppelin records. That was the bass playing that I loved. Ah, interesting. Okay. It, so, but I mean, I didn't get to, Jamerson. I mean, I, this is what I'm talking about, the plotting of the lineage, you know. For me, it was John Paul Jones first. You know, Jesus Christ Superstar. Those were the those were the Motown lines I heard first. Okay. I mean, I heard the radio. There was the radio, but I got more into this stuff. And then, really, I didn't go that far with Led Zeppelin. I mean, I only once it wasn't blues anymore. I I, I didn't really like it that much, uh -huh. and I didn't even realize that. I didn't even know Willie Dixon wrote Spoonful until I heard Chris Wood's version of it with. Uh, uh chris whitley that great yeah. great record yeah oh i love that record 
to me, that's a big part of how you end up where you are. It's like, okay, you're influenced by these things. There's tradition attached to them. Some people are really into the tradition and they get that sense very early. Jazz players too. I mean, you know, Scott Hamilton was a jazz player that he had the chewing tobacco and he drank drinks from the from the forties and he wore spats and he was doing the thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then and then the blues thing can be like that. Or the blues thing could be for me it was, oh, that's why I liked Led Zeppelin. And that's what we would play all the time at home. We would play a blues. That was the that was the thing to learn how to how to uh, play. I didn't I didn't attach any of the, all the tradition that there was to it until recently, really. I mean I I mean there's so much music there and so much of it. I just, I'm so blown away by how much I love it because I never heard it before. I heard the guys that loved it doing it. So around your house with your dad's music collection and stuff, was it pretty strictly jazz classical, like not much rock and roll around the house? It was not the collection. It was not that it was. And also my dad wasn't there. So I didn't even have his record collection. And I didn't, I didn't actually know, you know, like when I've worked with Chet Baker and Art Pepper, I didn't know who they were. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know. I mean, I had to, they were old guys. Chet Baker's teeth were falling out. Right. He, he was, he looked like he'd been just, you know, beaten up in the I mean, oh my God. He probably had been. Rough. He was in rough shape and Art was just as, just as bad, you know, and he, I mean, he was, I mean, it played great and, and I, I could hear, I could hear the music, but I didn't know the, I didn't know the tradition, you know, I didn't get a chance. I I mean, I missed so many of those things happened for me, I guess, maybe like a kid that travels a lot, you know, (laughs) you travel a lot when you're young and you you kind of, you, you know, you learn from the experience. There are things that are great about it. I mean, I, I got to repeat it with Mose Allison. I mean, I played with him when I was, when I was, probably uh, 17 or 18. Yeah. He was famous for coming up to Canada and like having pickup bands. So you were, you backed him up. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then he was incredible, man. And then I got to do it again. He, he came, um, uh, Joe, Joe Henry was, uh, curating a festival in Germany called the uh, century of song. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he brought Mo's to do that. Okay. That was before the record that we did with yeah. most. So I got sort of three chances. So the second time I got to play with uh, with most, okay, I had I had 25 years under my belt. Like I mean, he could remember me. I don't think, and it didn't matter to me. I just it was so exciting to be able to do it again. Yeah. Seen thousand fall in line and never know what for, and still our greatest fear. Is just that knock up on the door. It's just the way of the world. It was the same book, and <laughs> and it was like it was kind of crazy for me to be able to have that experience. It was really, really. Um, it was so. It was so good. Of course, now I'm much better. I think at. I really want to know more about what it is that I'm getting into. I, I, I really was just. 
flying by the seat of my pants. That was my school. Right. I love it. I think, and, that, I think that's an awesome way to learn too. Oh, oh, absolutely. Speaking yeah. of jumping around and backtracking, you mentioned a few minutes back the Alan Toussaint session and knowing a, a bit about the way that, that Joe works, especially with you guys is like, everyone comes in and like you say, there's no charts really. Like you're just like there because you're who you are and you're going to make that sound, but you're, you don't know the songs. You don't have charts. Somebody like Alan Toussaint strikes me as somebody who through his career would have had like very extremely specific charts. So what was that record like? And was that a thing like where he came in and he's like, well, what are these guys going to play? Like how is this? No, 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 no. He was making, it wasn't like the Manhattan transfer situation where they went, ah, (laughs) a ranger. We needed a ranger. Uh, No, no, he was, he, he really wanted he wanted somebody to take him on a trip. Okay. So he was perfectly happy getting out of his comfort zone. Oh, he chose it all the way and he was really happy. You know, on the second record, there was there was a lot of stuff he hadn't heard before. You know, and okay. and uh, I thought the idea was beautiful. You know, that, that that Joe had chosen all the piano players that that he thought would be a, a beautiful kind of tribute to them to have Alan interpret mm-hmm. what they were known for. Yeah, was Bill Evans, and it was not you know was not something that I mean I'm sure he knew who Bill Evans was, but yeah. But, but, and, and, and I'm sure he listened to it or something, but I mean, I don't think he had ever, not the way piano players would need to do to be familiar with that stuff. I think, you know, so, so we were, we were doing, uh, uh, Waltz for Debbie, which for me was, was something again, it speaks to the, my experience of, of having loved this song. And the version, the iconic version with Scott Lafaro playing yeah. it, and and never having actually played it or right. figured it out, mm-hmm. I had never done it. So in a way, he and I were in the same boat, you know. And I was a little bit like, I think I may have found it more daunting than than uh, uh, than Alan because of the Scott Lafaro thing and the fact that here we were in a in it was it was a uh, it was bass. And piano and drums. We were in that traditional uh, piano trio, Bill Evans trio setup, mm-hmm. and we were doing Waltz for Debbie. And I certainly did my homework. I sure as hell knew we weren't going to play it like 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 that. Right, of course. You know, I did. I I didn't know how we were going to play it, but but I had to come up with some kind of understanding of the song so that we could just start playing because that's the way these sessions would go.
You know, it's like, so with a song like that, I mean, it, we're not talking about, you know, uh, St. James Infirmary, which has its own set of problems. Yeah. I mean, you play a, you play a three chord song and, and there might be eight or nine people in the room that are throwing a fourth chord in there course, somewhere. Yeah. Or There's a million ways to play a song like that too. Well, you know, like a blues, if it goes to the four or whether it goes mm-hmm. to the five or, well, if you're on a session and you're playing the bass with the piano, and you're not sure that thing could come around every time, like the boom of a sailboat and bang you in the head every time you guess, am I going to the four or I'm going? I mean, this is what started to really tremendously build my respect for folk music and country music was that, you know, oh my God, why can't I do this? Yeah. Yeah. Anyone that thinks that thinks that kind of music is simple should. Yeah. Is it one? Is it five? Is it? No. Wait, wait till you hear the singer. What singer? What's the singer? You know, I mean, I had to learn all that shit, you know, and, and it was, you know, so, so all those things can be hard, but this was not possible to come in and not be, not have a solid idea of what you were going to do. So I did, I did it. And then I kind of, it was beautiful. I was kind of solid. So I wasn't freaking out and I had somehow internalized the song because i never had when i was a kid Mm -hmm. and i never learned it i never really learned the complicated part of it Mm -hmm. and i heard the simple part of it and the simple part of it was something that i encouraged uh us to do you know was alan familiar enough with the tune to just sit down and play it or was he learning it (laughs) no he's just so talented that he could sit down and play it yeah so you know i mean it was it was he he had to you know, he didn't like sit sit home and practice and do stuff like that. He 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 would well maybe he did, but 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 uh, I mean he was he was yeah you know, like my my like my pop would say he he practice on the gig yeah practice on the gig so he would come and we we worked it out beautiful it was beautiful all that stuff the Duke stuff I thought it was a great concept and I love that record it's such a great record and. And, and and I love that it came together that way. That's how we did it. And, and I mean, the Viper, the one, uh, there's something called the Viper's Rag or something. And that one, I just learned. I mean, that was when I realized, you know, I, I got it together. Now, I, I know those left-hand piano players, you have to know what they're doing. There's no fucking around with those guys. Exactly. You've got to do what they're doing. Randy Newman is that. When I worked with Randy, it was the same thing. I got those demos from from Mitchell Fruman and I was like this is for dark matter yeah and I was it was like okay well I need to know every single note I, I mean I'm not going to play every note but I have to know every everything that he's doing because there's no banging around down yeah you know you can't bang around down there no you can't be bumping into people down there in the low in the low <laughs> register when the piano player plays that note that way I mean I, you know most of the jazz piano players I've had come up playing with 
didn't matter what bass note you played most of the time, yeah. as long as it was in the mode. Right, 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 <laughs> it right, right, was right. Okay. So again, that was another, that was another kind of a, it was a good thing and it was a bad thing. It meant that for a lot of those tunes, I didn't actually know exactly what the right chords were. So I developed bad habits with that. <laughs> good habits and bad habits. I could improvise. I could listen. I could find my own bass notes that worked. But man, I'll tell you, there comes a time where you want to know exactly what the root is yeah, for that of course. Song. Yeah. Like what, how does it go? I mean, I didn't even know. I, I'll tell you, I, I used to play for years. I'm so lonesome with uh, Holly Cole. Yeah. Hank Williams. It's not Woody Guthrie. Right? It's Hank Williams. That's a Hank Williams and, song. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, and, you know, we had this, uh, you know, it's it, beautiful. Aaron had this gorgeous arrangement on it, you know, then, and it started with the, right away, it started with the descending bass line all the way through all the chords. And yep. that's the way I learned the song. You know, I learned it. I mean, I may have heard it a little bit, but I didn't study it. And, and, and then we had this gorgeous song for it. And, and I had an epiphany when I played it with Bill Frizzell and there were only three chords and a, a regular full on come to Jesus moment. I wow. looked at that chart and I went, I went, what? It's <laughs> genius. <laughs> I just was blown away by it. I mean, it stays on the one. It's still on the one. We're still on the one. Right. One, one, one. There's a lot of implied movement in a song like that. Right. And then the jazz players all, they put, they, they, if it's implied, it's going to be there. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, so there's all, all those moving harmonies can get followed by the bass. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with David Pilch. We'll be back next week, one week from today for part two. Hope to see you then. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers